Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins, and today's pin is one that I usually resist because I think that flag pins are not the best way to show patriotism, but for today, it did seem like the right pin to wear for our very special guest. And Victor, why don't you introduce us? After over 20 years, President Biden is presiding over the withdrawal of the U.S. troops in Afghanistan. This is a policy that has the overwhelming support of the American public and has been a policy both Democrats and Republican elected officials have urged over the years. Trump and Pompeo negotiated with the Taliban to reach this point, and Biden said both as a candidate for president and as president now that our role there should end. The only thing not foreseen is how fast the government we supported would fall to the Taliban or that the president would flee to the country and the Afghanistan army laid down its arms, the weapons we provided so quickly or for its president we supported to flee. That has raised numerous questions, not about whether the withdrawal was the right decision, but whether planning for it was handled correctly by President Biden, and what needs to be done to protect those who helped us fight in Afghanistan and to protect the gains in Afghanistan civil society, including especially for the girls and women in the region. Like our listeners, Victor and I have some serious questions And we have no special expertise to answer our own questions or your questions. So we invited an expert to help us, Malcolm Nance, my friend and a fellow MSNBC contributor. He has the right expertise. Malcolm is the author of many books and he's a media commentator on intelligence and foreign policy, terrorism, insurgency, and torture. He is a former U.S. Navy Senior Chief Petty Officer. No doubt you have heard Malcolm many times on MSNBC discussing jihadi radicalization, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, as well as counterinsurgency and asymmetric warfare. We'll talk about all of those things today. He is schooled in Arabic and Russian, and in 2016, he wrote two books Defeating ISIS, Who They Are, How They Fight, What They Believe, and he also wrote The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election. So, he is an expert in exactly what we need. But in addition to his books and his media career, Malcolm founded and is now the executive director of a Hudson, New York-based think tank. Our goal today is to ask the questions we think our audience wants to know about. What's happening in Afghanistan and what is our role there now? What was it for the last 20 years? Uh, Before Victor asks Malcolm the first question, I just wanna say that because things are unraveling so fast there uh, that we We'll try to keep the questions helpful to you in understanding the background of what's going on and help you to understand what is going on and what the future holds. So we hope that no matter how fast things are happening, our questions are going to be relevant to you listening to this 
immediately. And with that, thank you, Malcolm, for being with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so let's maybe start with some historical context um, during 9-11, but I understand that the war in Afghanistan began as a result of 9-11. Um, is that correct? Well, it certainly is a result of 9-11, but there's an enormous amount of history behind uh, Afghanistan that when we went in, uh, you know, soon after September 11th with the first, uh, you know, the, the CIA paramilitary teams and then the combat jump into Kandahar, um, there was an enormous amount of British uh, and, and Russian history that had just, let's be quite honest, ignored about where we were going. The counterterrorism mission was uh, was well exacted. It had a very focused, uh, you know, and, and, and limited scope. But it was the follow-on to punish the Taliban, to topple the government that had been a safe haven for Al Qaeda. That was actually run. Al Qaeda was running their training program. All of their military bases, their military structure was essentially managed by Al Qaeda, who they saw as, you know, these noble Islamic warriors from the homeland, you know, from the Islamic homeland, who had come to assist them. Uh, and then once we came and knocked down al-Qaeda and routed the Taliban, moved the Taliban into their Pakistan safe haven, the mission was pretty much done. It, after that came the nation building, and, and that's what led us to where we are today. So... Uh, can you maybe go a little bit more in depth into the purpose of our intervention? Was it getting rid of the Taliban or punishing the 9-11 attackers? Um, and I guess, was there any evidence the Taliban was involved in 9-11? Well, the Taliban could be said to be involved only in the sense that they occupied the country. They were the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. They ran Afghanistan. They had spent years fighting the, you know, the Afghan warlords who in the post-Russian uh, withdrawal had pretty much dissected the country into tribal and warlord chieftains. Um, the Taliban uh, were, in his, were Afghans. That's one thing that most people don't seem to understand. They are not foreigners. They were Afghans, many of them Afghan refugees who were living in Pakistan, uh, who came from this, uh, you know, uh, this very deeply Islamic religious variation and who were raised in the refugee camps in the madrasas of the refugee camps, which is just Arabic and, 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 and Pashto and Dari, for school, right? Taliban are the ones who were the students or the educated but in the Islamic way. And so when they came in as a fighting force uh, and, and fought the warlords of Afghanistan and defeated them uh, in the 1990s, uh, the, the, the reason for this the way that they had the ability to defeat them is because they had the buy-in of the general population. Yes, they were very strict. Yes, they were a brutal regime, but they were strict and brutal within the precepts of their religious culture, right? Within their belief of Islam, so that the average person in Afghanistan could understand, could clearly work with them, right? The Taliban did bring some things to Afghanistan that I know we're loath to respect, but for the most part, you know, when I was there, it was very clear to the to me the average Afghan really did respect the things that they did, taking um, uh, taking alcohol out of Afghanistan, removing the entirety of the heroin trade, 
Uh, you know, if you know, if there was any heroin trade that was being allowed by the Taliban, it was microcosmic compared to what happened after we invaded, where it exploded and flooded the world markets to where the United States actually has an opium epidemic, uh, you know, of, of much of it coming out of Afghanistan or the fentanyl that comes out of China, right? So the Taliban were, were accepted by these the people. Now, when I say the people, there are some things that you need to know before we get into their support of al-Qaeda. When I say the people of Afghanistan, I mean the patriarchal, misogynistic society that they chose for themselves. It is run by men. It is run by the senior male of the family known as the Wali. The Wali is the decision maker. The Wali controls the family in its, in, in, at, at the house and village level. Then moving on from there, it is the tribal sheikhs, uh, you know, who actually run the, uh, you know, the community itself, right? These people are generally family. They are generally higher. The hierarchy comes from the senior male and the old elders of the group. And they have a senior decision maker who is normally the most conservative and most traditional of all of them, right? And so they do what's good for the family, the community, and, and their own personal and economic well-being. That being said, it also explains what happened this week, because there is no country of Afghanistan. There, you know, I mean, Alexander the Great and uh, Genghis Khan both found out what happened when you came into this region of, you know, of, of tribalists. Uh, what you found is that you had warring families attacking you, literally biblical, right? Like the Old Testament, you know, families uh, fighting as they go back, making their way back to the promised land. So those people, when the Taliban came in, the Taliban put a template over them that calmed most of the tribes because they were accepted for their culture, their religion, and their ability to allow them to live what they viewed as virtuous lives within that cultural religious, uh, you know, framework. Malcolm, um, I want to ask you something that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I want to follow up on sure. when you said that this is a misogynistic, patriarchal society. One of the things that happened today is there was an announcement from the Taliban that women should join the government and that they would be, uh, I'm not sure what the exact word was, uh, uh, they would be accepted right? and that they would be able to right. participate and, and uh, within Sharia law. So for me as a woman and who's very concerned about the loss of rights of women and young girls in, in, in Afghanistan, I just am trying to understand what that means really in terms of how much freedom will they have to be outside the household, to be educated, et cetera? This is going to prove difficult for some people to accept, right? But they are a patriarchal, misogynistic society that is working within the precepts of Islam as established in 632, you know, and and the reinterpretations by the Prophet Muhammad. So what I suspect the Taliban are doing is that they are broadcasting uh, to the men in that society that their wives won't be assaulted, their daughters won't be raped, uh, and that they won't be taken away by their soldiers. 
That being said, okay, I have lived in the Middle East for over three decades. I, I just spent 10 years in, uh, living in uh, the United Arab Emirates and traveling to all of these nations over there uh, in South Asia and the Middle East and North Africa. That's my area of operations. And let's be honest, uh, there is no family unless you're married. There is no, you know, libidinous earthly pleasures unless you're married. You're talking about a population where 50% of the men are under the age of 25. And for them to be complete within their, their, their family, their tribe, and their society, they must get married. Uh, I've been to many weddings, uh, which is the greatest achievement of the, the eldest male or the males in that family. Not for the females, the males. And, uh, and I'm not just talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about Iraq, Syria, Kuwait, you know, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh. It, it's within Sharia law that this is the way it is. Saudi Arabia is a perfect example of what the, Af uh, you know, what the Afghans would like, minus allowing the women to go shopping in the malls. Um, it's going to go back and reset to, 19, um, to 2021. Uh, it, uh, not 2021, uh, uh, 2001. They're going back to women will have to all wear the shador, right? To have to wear the long blue uh, dress, which covers all of them. It's going to go back to where women will not be educated. It's going to go back to where if they make money and communicate, it will be clandestine. And the daughters and these women, uh, you know, whether they be widows or, or teen brides, the Taliban, I suspect, are setting them up to be accepted into society as Islamic wives. And that allows them, as the Taliban and the senior power, to allow their members to marry into tribes. If you think this is Byzantine or a little medieval, it literally is. But it is the way they have their custom. Right, I was actually hoping, you mentioned Pakistan and I worked there for a long time and um, negotiated deals under Sharia law and sort of have a, an understanding of it. But in Pakistan, at least back when I was there, women were much more uh, full participants in society. They had a female uh, prime minister when I was there. And so I was hoping that there was some chance that I could interpret what was said by the Taliban as indicative of a possible uh, uh, arrangement that was more like Pakistan than like what it was in 2001. But I well, take it I may not you be also right. Have to understand. And... Pakistan is really let's let's use the correct historical terminology, right? You know, essentially uh, what British West India, right? And they only got their freedom in within the last uh, I think it's 75 years, and they are culturally different from, you know, all the people who now in the areas of the Northwest Frontier province, where I operated, uh, which is, you know, the, the Pashtun areas, the, as they called it in the British, the Pathans, and, uh, you know, the, the, the tribes of, of the Northwest Frontier province, which were never subjugated by the British, even Winston Churchill in 1897, as a young lieutenant slash reporter, went up there to put down the exact same tribes that we're fighting today, right? With the Malakan Field Force. Um, they have always been this way. They have never, they are not 
the you know the families of Islamabad. They are not the people who you know who 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 live in eastern uh, Pakistan. Or, you know, Rawalpindi with this developed society that was essentially created by the British over several centuries. These are as as Kipling called them, the wild men of the Pashtun, right? So right, right. this is the way and that the they, women there you know, do they, wear full burqas. They are wearing full burqas there. But uh, one other thing about history that you alluded to and that I want to follow up on uh, before we move to more current events is that we haven't learned from history because, you know, we can look at either Vietnam and what we didn't learn from French adventures in Vietnam, but also you mentioned the British and the Russians. I mean, the Russians left um, the country, left Afghanistan, and then we came in learning nothing from their failure in uh, Afghanistan. And how have we ignored all these historic lessons so that now we're withdrawing and facing the consequences of chaos right now? Let me be painfully blunt. Americans are, are, are you know, what's that old phrase they used to say? You know, good old milk-faced kids, you know, who want to go out and, and have, mean well. But we are also a isolated, bigoted society that is fundamentally racist. And we view foreign cultures as so different from ours. And if they can't be seen within ours and assimilated, right, we take a negative view. I was asked yesterday, well, what is it going to mean for an Islamic Afghanistan? Well, we don't seem to have a problem for the most part with an Islamic Saudi Arabia or an Islamic, you know, Oman or an Islamic Jordan or an Islamic Iraq, although we do have problems with them, you know. Once they reach a certain level of avarice and and, and, and money and licentiousness in mimicking us, then we sort of like them. But for the most part, Afghanistan is a is 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 wholly of itself. I tweeted this. We don't own Afghanistan. We don't own Afghanistan. We can't complain about things that they are doing for themselves. And it's that cultural ignorance that the average American has and a pretty, how can I put it, a lack of, of curiosity and compassion for other people living their lives the way they are. Granted, we can't stand for massive human rights abuses like the Cambodian genocide or the Rwandan genocide, um, you know, one of which I, I actually was, or, you know, uh, did intelligence collection in the post operation in the Rwandan genocide, um, you know, these things are beyond the pale. But for as, as, as we as a country have to deal with this problem, you know, it's terrible. There may be, in fact, human right abuses. But I'm just only this much hopeful, 0.001%, that the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Pakistanis, and the Chinese are going to be convincing the Taliban this time, that they can actually be a nation state that is maybe not respected, but certainly able to operate within South Asia economically, which is what the Chinese are looking for, right? They don't care at all about religion. They don't care at all about human rights abuses. They don't care how they treat their women. They want to get that Pakistani extension 
in the great, you know, the greater Silk Road to, uh, you know, get other avenues, quicker avenues to, to eastern Iran, uh, you know, and natural minerals that exist there. The United States went there on this grand neoconservative fantasy that we were going to turn entire nations into uh, landing pads for U.S. forces to counter the, the, the great game. I'm going to say this right now, and I'm sure you can appreciate it. The great game is over. What started in the 1800s of nation states vying off of everybody, that's finished. That has literally ended in the last couple of days. So, you know, in less than 10 more centuries, somebody tries to do this again, like the, you know, a future Genghis Khan decides he's going to come down there, you know, and spread his DNA. This isn't happening. The greatest risk we have right now is not them using Afghanistan as a terrorist base camp to attack the United States and our allies. It's Afghanistan quietly and secretly poisoning Pakistan through the Tariq Taliban Pakistan and other very militant Islamic groups to destabilize that country, take it over and acquire atomic bombs. So Malcolm, let's move now to what is happening right now to recent times. And Trump said he was going to leave Afghanistan. He negotiated an exit. He signed an agreement in Doha when, um, <laughs> with someone who may now be the president of Afghanistan, who could become the president. He was a Taliban member. He invited Taliban leaders to Camp David, but then withdrew the invitation. Um, he seems to have excluded the Afghan government from this deal. And so let's look at what that deal provided that was between Pompeo and Trump and the Taliban and whether Biden, President Biden, was bound by it and limited in his options in withdrawing troops. Well, you know, I'm glad you bring this up because there seems to be a massive amnesia in the news media that what Joe Biden was handed was a withdrawal date on January 20th, the withdrawal date was May 1st, May 1st. In fact, in the last month of the Trump administration, the acting Secretary of Defense was ordered to pull all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan by 1 January. And of course, no one could do that uh, without a massive rout, uh, even worse than what we had the other day. Um, so... For the most part, the Trump administration cut this deal. Trump campaigned on it in 2016 that he would get us out of both Iraq and Afghanistan. He did it. He abandoned our allies in Kurdistan in the face of ISIS after having defeated ISIS, where the Kurds shed their blood for that. He ordered a withdrawal of U.S. forces out of Iraq that was only tempered by the fact that he was promised that he could get the oil out of the oil fields of northern Syria and that all we were doing in Iraq was a training mission. So the Department of Defense changed the terms to from combat missions to training missions. And that placated him uh, because he was campaigning on U.S. forces out of these places and that he would be the great you know, leader to end all these wars. Um, again, this could have happened last January 1st. Joe Biden inherited this crock of, of, uh, of, of, of camel dung, to, to put it in their terms. And, you know, he had to make a strategic decision. 
Do we put U.S. soldiers back in harm's way? By the way, the, the framework of that deal was quite simple. The United States, not including the government of Afghanistan in this negotiation, would essentially turn the country over to the Taliban. And then it would be up to the Taliban to work with the Ghani, Ashraf Ghani's government to have a transition um, power sharing uh, agreement that would allow them to come back into the country and to be a legitimate political power. Okay, now, anyone at all who understands that the Afghans are playing the, you know, the same game that they played against Genghis Khan, which is wait them out in their, you know, their Pakistani sanctuary, we're never going to share government with the uh, tribal, not, not even tribal elite, with the, with the cosmopolitan elite billionaires who were stealing American money hand over fist. The Afghan operated the street level. That is where their buy-in was. The United States was negotiating at the diplomatic level which is the rulers of Afghanistan as we installed them and as we, the Loya Jirga, the tribal chiefs had selected. But, you know, if you want an education in what actually happened, don't listen to me. Watch the movie Catch-22. There's a great scene where Art Garfunkel is speaking to an old Italian man and he says, you know, you're a fascist. And he said, well, when the fascists were here, I was an ardent fascist. And when Mussolini was here, I was ardently supporting Mussolini. And when the Americans came, I became patriotically American. And he says, well, you're a hypocrite. And he goes, no, I'm a survivor. And he says, well, that's, that's crazy. He goes, yes, but I'm 106 years old. So <laughs> this is the Loya Jirga, right? These are the tribal chiefs. They know where the power is coming from. They understand the waves that when Donald Trump said he was giving away Afghanistan and then betrayed the Kurds completely, utterly, hopelessly turned them over to be savaged by Turkish-backed militias and the Russian-backed Syrian forces, look, they just said, we're going over to the people who my what my children can understand and will bring peace to this country and that's the taliban those deals are only being reported in the last 48 hours that the tribal chiefs provincial governors and people who did not have executive jets to fly their money over look they're all moving to abu dhabi i lived in abu dhabi for 10 years the beverly hills in the middle east i'm going to find ashraf ghani all of the provincial chiefs the head of the armed forces will all be living there, hanging out at the Corniche, drinking cafe and complaining that they only have two or three billion dollars to spend. But the Do you Taliban, know where Ashraf Ghani is right now? Because he seems I'm to be. Tell you, he's, he's if he fled. isn't in Doha, he's, he's in Abu Dhabi. He's in Doha or Abu Dhabi. Victor? So uh, I, I want to, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I want to move on to the Biden administration. You know, he campaigned on the notion that he wanted to end this, the, you know, the endless war, echoing Trump. On April fourteenth, he announced that he would withdraw all U.S. troops by nine eleven, a decision that many people agree with. Um, did you agree with Biden when he announced the withdrawal of troops in April? No, I, I did not agree with him on that, uh, principally because. Look, we had 2,500 troops in the country. We had a counterterrorism mission uh, that we were running at the time. But uh, 
I, I didn't think that that was, I thought that that was a very highly compressed timetable. Another thing that it required, and you, you have to understand, I, I am a field level intelligence collector, right? Which means I feel the street, okay? And then I push my analysis up. Then it is handled by mid-level and high-level people who reduce one thing down to a single sentence for the presidential daily briefing, if what I have to collect is important enough. He was dealing at the diplomatic level also and having the assurances from the chief of staff of the armed forces of Afghanistan, the president of Afghanistan, the same provincial chiefs who were all finished their deals with the Taliban knowing that the day that the last soldier stepped out of Afghanistan, I, I, I said this on television the other day, I'm going to say it on Andrea Mitchell today, um, five guys who were terrorist cell the night before were called by the leadership of the Taliban and said, go to the provincial governor headquarters and take over the province, right? There was virtually no fighting. This was not a grand army of, of the Taliban sweeping through Afghanistan and having meeting and maneuver engagements and defeating them and going in. No, these guys, all of the soldiers in Afghan National Police who wanted to remain at their post, who thought that they were helpful, changed into their shawar khamis and put on their pahul hat and became the Taliban the next morning with all of our equipment. So that's, U.S. intelligence couldn't possibly have intercepted that. We could have, but it wouldn't have made it to the believable level at the CIA or the Directorate of National Intelligence. But guys like me were probably over at CIA and other areas were probably shouting it from the rooftops. There are secret deals in place. Um, this country is going to fall in 48 hours. The country, I mean, I'm sure the Taliban are still trucking in guys from, you know, uh, from down in, you know, in Pakistan you know, to get them to start occupying places and put officers above the Afghan army people who have flipped just to make sure that they maintain their loyalty. And I just want to clarify one thing. There's no one who didn't think that the outcome would be the Taliban in control. The only question is whether anyone predicted how fast it would happen, which is impeding our ability to evacuate uh, our own citizens and the Afghanis who supported us, our interpreters and others who were essential to our mission there. So it's not that we didn't think this would be the outcome. Everybody predicted that. Um, am I correct in, in clarifying that? That's absolutely correct. And I believe President Biden said that the assessment he had from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was 90 days, that it would be 90 days to a fold down of the Afghan forces and that they would turn over to the Taliban. Um, but again, okay, I have been to this camel market, okay? Never trade with a kid that, you know, with an old man that has ridden camels since he was two, right? You can't go into that part of the world and expect to outdeal them, right? Out-hustle them. As, you know, Rudyard Kipling put in, in one of his famous poems, um, uh, how does how does that poem go? Uh, at the end of the fight on a tombstone white, uh, you know, of our late of of uh, of the lately deceased, uh, an epitaph drear, a fool lies here who tried to hustle the east, and Donald Trump thought he was hustling these people, 
and they got everything they wanted. Trump released 5,000 of their senior management and combat career, you know, combat officers to them. And they are now the government of Afghan of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Now, if the if the Taliban are smart and they want to have the United States not bombing them for the next two years, which is the one thing we can do, they would allow that airport to stay open. They would say any Amer person who wants to go to the United States who can prove it, just go to the airport. We're not going to hinder you. And we're going to allow these humanitarian flights to go in and out because they and then, you know, maybe the United States will release all the funds in the central bank. Maybe they will establish Islamic charities like the International Committee of the Red Crescent to come in and facilitate uh, the transition of the country without bloodshed. I'm telling you, 90% of that 60,000 men, all they want to do is get married. But they're not going to go around grabbing women and raping them because they'll be beheaded or executed by, by, by gunshot. There is a template coming in that we are not going to like because we are not attuned to accepting other cultures, but they have all chosen. So one of the questions I know many people have is with 20 years of training by us, so much money invested, I mean, how could this have happened? Like, why didn't we foresee this? We foresaw it. Every soldier that went to Afghanistan foresaw it when they first, and here's when, when they asked, tried to teach an Afghan National Army guy to do jumping jacks, right? You know, the simple hand over your head. Impossible for them. Right. I don't know why they just don't do it. They just can't do it. But they did get together. There was an Afghan National Army. They did fight with us at their backs. All right. The emphasis is alongside of us. The British in 1839 created Afghan police, gendarmerie and military force. I'm sorry I don't have it in my room. This is my one of my my secret. I love me room where I have all my stuff from Afghanistan and Iraq, but I, I have a martini rifle from the souks of Afghanistan that was shipped back to the United States that was built in the 1890s when the British came for the second British-Afghan War. Um, there is a deep history of, of forces creating armies. The Soviet Union created a People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan army, and they too were slaughtered in kind along with the Soviets. But they also ran when the Soviets left and joined the Mujahideen and the elements which would later become the Taliban. So none of these things, you know, our biggest problem is, is that many of our military commanders, even though they're well-educated, don't believe what they're reading. Okay. Uh, I'm seeing news media today who don't seem to understand that Afghanistan is not the, the, the fall of Kabul is nowhere near anywhere close a precedent, uh, you know, or, or equal to the fall of Saigon, in which millions of people, million or more, came to the United States, where, where aircraft were flying in and out for weeks at a time, where we had to airlift every orphan child in Vietnam, an Operation Baby lift out of the country. There was an Air Force aircraft that crashed that killed 176 of them when a C-5 crashed at Tan Son Hut. It was mass hysteria for weeks. But the Vietnamese Army was still fighting the North Vietnamese forces. They fought for two years, uh, you know, from the Easter Offensive of 1972 
to the fall of Saigon 1975. That's not what happened here. This is like you waking up and finding out your father has sold your home, your property, and you to the local area mafioso, and that the entire community that you live in gives it the double thumbs up. So uh, I, I want to ask you about um, our embassy and the staff on the ground and the Afghans who helped us there, the interpreters and others. Um, there has been reports that said that when Biden announced his withdrawal in April, that there were over 14,000 uh, special immigrant visa applicants who wanted to leave. And it takes more than two years to process one of those app or those applications. So I'm wondering, um, just, I guess, do you buy the argument that he didn't know? Or I guess, what caused this uh, uh, influx of applications and, and could he have prevented that? Well, you know, you keep using the word he as if Joe Biden actually has his finger on the pulse of all of this. What, he, what the president could have done, right, if he had got, and I, I believe this from the bottom of my heart, this guy is not Donald Trump. And they are competent. But they are a bureaucratic administrative staff that requires each individual secretary and the subordinate undersecretaries to do their job, right? A person like me, a field person, and the people who are all down there in the news media right now and the NGO world who also did not plan for this, okay? So I'm, I'm holding them to account too because I've been in countries where I've seen, you know, uh, CNN, MS, uh, CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post leave their stringers to themselves, right? Wouldn't bring out all of their freelancers. So Joe Biden can't be held accountable for all of that. But what we should have done was we should have thrown bureaucracy out the window. We did this once before for the Kurds back in, let me get the year right, I want to say 1993, when we started carrying a whole bunch of Kurds out of northern Iraq, okay? When Saddam Hussein was, was, was you know, we established our, no fly zone there. And we, with almost no question, ramps down, people on, wrote down their names, gave them a, you know, an, a, a biometric ID card and flew them all to Guam. I know because my Arabic linguists were flown from the United States, especially our women Arabic linguists, were flown from, you know, the base I was at in Spain and sent to Guam to go down and do humanitarian handling. The United States has the capacity to, you know, to high flow, low admin these people. But, you know, you have Republicans here in the United States who are saying every person that comes from overseas is a potential terrorist and we need to do years of background vetting. If the Taliban allow us, we need to throw that out the window. And if the Taliban were smart, it would be in their interest and I would tie it to the money that we have that's in the Afghan Central Bank. I would say allow us to create five marshalling points around the country to where people that can prove that they are U.S. allies can come there. Caution. I have been in that part of the world. I have seen people manufacture documents, letters of appreciation and all sorts of stuff overnight. We're talking people who we can, who we know, the 14,000 immigrant visas, people who are U.S. residents should be treated as American citizens for the purpose of this evacuation, the relatives of people who are U.S. residents should be allowed to leave in peace. That is not going to satisfy a lot of people. There are talk of 86,000 people. Okay, let's do that. And we fly them all to, you know, you fly them all to um, Air Force bases in Utah and Texas and Arizona. 
and create a massive resettlement program. Then I think you're going to hear people on the other side of the aisle start screaming. Because, again, we have people in this country who are fundamentally bigoted, fundamentally racist, fundamentally uh, anti-immigrant. We have a whole bunch of the reincarnation of the know-nothings, right, of the 1830s. But look at it from my perspective. I'm an intelligence professional, okay? If I could get 5,000 Dari and Pashtu speakers working as subcontractors for the National Security Agency to make sure that the the Taliban do not reconstitute al-Qaeda or to help combat ISIS Khorasan or to be liaison officers for the CIA or to become CIA collections officers, myself, in order to better understand Southwest Asia's uh, dynamic under the Islamic Emirate, I do it. Don't make me president of the United States. That would be they would become the greatest intelligence assets since, uh, you know, that we use the Japanese and, you know, in interpreters in World War Two. So maybe you should run for office, Malcolm, because (laughs) that's not, not a bad idea. And actually, at a press conference this morning, the Pentagon spokesman did say that they were setting up places to evacuate people to on uh, military bases and that they were going to um, do something to speed up the process to protect the people who helped us and worked with us, I I guess. But my question is, you know, we didn't predict how fast this would happen. um, And the Pentagon is still saying, and the White House is still saying, this mission will end on August 31st, which is only, what, two weeks away, not even two weeks away. Um, and they're only able to evacuate a few thousand every day. And we know that there are probably 100,000 who need to be evacuated. That doesn't add up to enough days. So that, is it inevitable that we're going to extend? I don't think the Taliban, you know, the Taliban, you're, you're once again, you're trying to buy camels in the camel market from a guy that's ridden them since he was a child, right? You cannot out-hustle the East here. If the Taliban says August 31st, I'd play their silly game. I'd say, okay, we're going to do August 31st. You're going to give us five air bases that we're going to come in. We're going to secure with our, you know, our, our special operations teams and our combat controllers, right? We're going to have embassy liaison there, and we're going to, we are going to do the Berlin airlift in reverse, right? We're not going to candy bomb. We are going to pull a mini evacuation of Saigon, but orderly. With people, you know, with you got to pull out also the journalists, the NGOs who risk their lives to create women's programs. But you also have to be cautious. And I I know this sounds a little callous, but, you know, I've been around. You know, I taught in Australia uh, for a few years. And one of the biggest problems that they had were when the boat uh, refugees were coming to the Australian shores, Sometimes some of these boats were 50% of them were Afghan young men who were economic refugees. And there's probably going to be a big push to become economic refugees again, because for the last 20 years, they've had PlayStation. They've had the Internet. They've had music. They've had alcohol. No, they didn't get married. But, you know, many of them are, are still found today in box trucks coming over from the pot, you know, from from Calais. Uh, you know, going into England via channel and, and being found dead inside these trucks. Many of them are Afghan young men. So they are not, you know, 
just people. They are not people, may not all be people who, who worked for us. They may just be people who say, I just don't feel like sitting here and herding my father's goats. Uh, by the way, I use that. That's not a stereotype. That's a fundamental fact in every village I've ever been to, right? And, and I, ran, I ran around Jalalabad and Tora Bora. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and that's just the way that their way of life is. And, you know, some of them, you know, want to go to Pakistan. Some of them want to go to Dubai. Some of them want to go, uh, to, well, walk through Iran to get to Turkey to try to get on a boat to make their way to Greece to see if they can also go up to, you know, through, Mes you know, through Macedonia and Bosnia and try to get to Germany. You know, because they see, you know, movies with, Young Afghans driving BMWs. So we have to be very careful about who's coming out. Right. And, and you've mentioned the young men of Afghanistan a number of times. And I just want to quickly move to the women and the girls. And is there anything that we can do? And in asking this question, I want to say I'm understanding what you're saying as Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization bent on destroying America. Taliban is a religious organization that wants to impose Sharia law and run Afghanistan. That's a very different thing. But in that, there are some human rights that we would recognize uh, where in the past women have been virtually slaves. And uh, sex slaves, as well as just bound to the home and not able to do anything. Um, so I just want to focus for a second. Uh, and then I know Victor wants to ask you about asymmetric warfare and how we could have fought the Taliban anyway. But just if you could address the women first. Yeah, and it's, and it's terrible. Uh, when, when I went to Afghanistan in 2002, um, you know, the Taliban had come back. Uh, they had, you know, they, the tribes still lived under Sharia law. The only thing that was missing, again, was the template of the Taliban as being the arbiters of, of justice, right? Executing people, stoning women to death, enforcing that women go out with a male in their family, that the, the wali, the senior male of the family, was the decision maker and would answer to the Taliban, um, you know, and that their girls weren't getting educated, that their girls were being prepped to be baby factories, Right. I also saw this the week after this fall of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. The exact same thing happened. Um, you know, uh, for the most part, the re-Islamization of, of countries that are, 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 are patriarchal is, is fundamental to that region of the world. So and I, I don't want to discuss some of the, the intelligence operations I did because they involved you know, being around women at a time that the Taliban yoke was lifted off. There are very intelligent, well-educated women there, you know, even those who are widows and, and weren't the high, most highly educated who want the economic opportunity. Uh, a good friend of mine created a program in Pakistan and then later moved it to Afghanistan where she made these little solar lanterns, these little inflatable solar lanterns and distributed them by the tens of thousands for the sole purpose of allowing women and girls to study in, in the tribal areas of Pakistan and Afghanistan after 5 p.m. when the sun went down and when the men weren't around, they could sew, they could knit, they could study 
in with light because otherwise it was just sit around in the dark and talk around the fire. So that kind of opportunity is likely to dissipate under the Taliban. Uh, but a lot of people seem upset by this and it is upsetting. I wish it wasn't so. They are not going to be progressive. But if, if you're worried about the Taliban, you might want to talk about our ally, Saudi Arabia, which is essentially Afghanistan. You know, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is a dreamland for Saudis, because if they could get away with it, with their oil money on that same level, they would. So, um, well, let's move on to an expertise that um, you have, which is asymmetric warfare. Um, I'm wondering if you think there's any way to fight and win, even with, I think, better equipped and trained forces against an embedded insurgent force in cave uh, and homes. Okay. Um, you know, the funny thing is I just finished a 120,000 word book on a coming American insurgency based on, you know, uh, what I had warned about last year. Uh, just after the election, that an insurgency was coming, right? People viewing themselves as a uh, viewing the government as an illegitimate force, right? That they would have to take up arms for. The fundamental basis of any insurgency is the fact that you have to have an ideology which motivates you. I've said this many, many times. You can, you know, and it's a cliche in counterinsurgency. You can kill a man, but you can't kill an idea. And the only way to really, truly defeat an insurgency, and I wrote this in a book that I personally thought was the best of the 10 books that I've written, a book called An End to Al-Qaeda. I uh, wrote it in 2005, I believe, uh, and it was a counter, it was a study of the cult-like ideology of Al-Qaeda, how these cults had come up five times before in Islamic history, and how they were obliterated. The first four times, they were put down by force of arms. Just everyone slaughtered, right? And one of those was the, uh, was the, uh, the Mahdiist uprising in, uh, in, in Sudan, in which, uh, you know, uh, um, George Gord Jordan, uh, Gordon was killed in, on, you know, on the steps of Khartoum. Uh, it took a British force to go down there, once again with a young Winston Churchill, down with the Lancers to go down and just wipe that out. But the people never bought into the idea that he was the Mahdi, right? The savior of Islam. And so, no, it, it, they all dissipated. The Al-Qaeda and ISIS model of them being better Muslims than Muslims and bringing Islam back to its pure roots as established by the Prophet Muhammad in 632 had more buy-in but their problem was, and what made them a cult, was that they believed that any Muslim that did not join them was a heretic, was an infidel, and could be killed, right? And it turns out that there was a terrorist group at the time of the Prophet Muhammad that did this very thing, the, the Khawadij. And the Prophet Muhammad warned against the Khawadij. And so the Muslim world saw these groups as alien. However, the Taliban do not behave that way. And so their ideological buy-in was, let's go home, let's live in our villages, let's get our sons married, let's fight against the infidels and bring Islam, basic Islam, back to the, to the mud, the mud uh, villages of Afghanistan. 
100% buy-in, right? So asymmetrically, the only way to defeat an enemy is to corrupt his ideology and put a meta-narrative around it that breaks the links between the community and the insurgent. The ISIS uh, Khorasan, which is the ISIS element that's operating in Asadabad, you know, in Nangarhar province, out in the mountains, they've already clashed with the Taliban. They've clashed with us. The Taliban have assisted us in bombing them. So that's going to be a challenge for ISIS, and it's going to be a challenge for the Taliban, because ISIS thinks the Taliban are lightweights. But the, pe but the first thing ISIS did in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, uh, Uganda, they married into the tribes in order to create blood relations. And, you know, it's like your crazy uncle that believes in QAnon, right? You're, you're in there and you're going to have to listen to him at Thanksgiving. Same thing with these. But you have to break the ideological bond between the community and the insurgent. And then the community will turn on the insurgent. You mentioned something that I find fascinating. And we have, I think we're running out of time, but we have so many more questions. We have to have you back to answer them. But um, one of the things you mentioned was about the concern about the fall of democracy in Afghanistan uh, by certain members of our political elite in the Republican Party but they aren't concerned about the fall of democracy in America and what the insurrection of January 6th meant. And uh, that concerns me greatly that we aren't thinking about this. I'm wondering if there is a way that we can fix what went wrong in Afghanistan, whether we can somehow head off Russia and China, which seem to be cozying up to the Taliban and I also wonder whether you think that the $2 trillion that we have allegedly spent was a waste, whether that money went into corruption um, and was completely misused, and whether there's anything left that we, we still have any leverage. Uh, I know that's a lot of questions packed in, but no, I'm no, trying no. to sort of summarize at the end. Question. Well, first off, um, there was never a democracy in Afghanistan. Never. Okay, the, the, the Loya Yirga is, a, it is an assembly of tribal chiefs. They're not elected. Okay, they are patriarchal. They go up the chain of command as the elders die and they become the elders. And they determine on the base. And let me tell you, if, if there's any, any system that they choose anybody on, it's on the, the depth of their conservatism and piety to Islam. That's that's it. And let me tell you, I, I you know, I, I just had some right winger attack me the other day saying, oh, you you were talking to the Taliban. I met the you know, in the post Tora Bora operation, I, I did an assessment and um, and I went up to Tora Bora and I met the last person who saw Osama bin Laden alive. And it was an imam of one of the villages up there. And the only reason he spoke to me was right. He knew I was an American. But he knew also that at the time he believed I was a Muslim. I read, he, he tested me by giving me the Quran and asking me to read the Quran in Arabic. And I read the Quran in Arabic. Uh, I, I sang nasheeds uh, with these guys. I prayed with them in their diwan, you know, uh, where they are. I drank tea 
and, you know, and technically got diabetes from the amount of sugar that they gave me. And I proved myself to him that I was worthy of having a conversation with him. And then he was like, oh, yeah, I saw the shake. Him and his guys came flying through here. You know, special forces didn't talk to this guy. CIA didn't talk to this guy. The Northern Alliance guys, they would never talk to them. Right? For some strange reason, he thought that I was the kind of guy who he could buy into. Maybe he thought that I was, you know, secretly on their side. I don't know. But I do know this. I respected him and their culture. And by showing that I understood their culture, I got by him. So uh, that hopefully answered the first part of your question. Uh, you could give me the other, about democracy. There is no democracy there. Right. There is tribalism there. Um, and I think that does really we, set the stage. That's a terrific analysis of us ignoring the culture of the country, the religion of the country, and trying to impose America's values and um, on, on a country that isn't desirous of that um, and that let, isn't let engaged your, me, in. Go ahead. Well, let me give your listeners a, a, a reading assignment. <laughs> okay. And then now that Afghanistan is done, we are essentially the British general reading public in 1843, wondering how several thousand British soldiers in the city of Kabul were slaughtered down to three men, right? Three survivors who were deliberately let escape. So that's where we are today. There's a book by a, 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 a British uh, adventurer, officer, or spy called Alexander Burns, also known as Secunder Burns, uh, who wrote a book called Kabul, which is C-A-B-O-O-L. And it talks about the British expedition into Afghanistan and their, their, their pomp, their circumstance, their bluster, and garrisoning in Kabul, and then getting wiped out. He was killed himself uh, in the markets of Kabul, living there like an Afghan. Uh, you know, there are things to learn. I read that book, jeez, um, I want to say that when the Taliban took over in 19, I think I read it in 1996, right after Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States. And I knew that he was dragging us into Afghanistan because he said so, right? He said he wanted the United States in Afghanistan to break them economically the way that they broke the Soviet Union. 9-11 was designed to get us into Afghanistan. Bin Laden achieved all of his goals, except ISIS ruined it for him by, you know, essentially uh, becoming crazy fundamentalist and, and uh, having the entire world descend on them. Afghanistan is resetting back to 2001. Let's hope it's a slightly kinder, more globalist looking 2001 because they want Chinese money and they want Chinese infrastructure and market share. And the Chinese want it too. And the Chinese don't care about women. They don't care about religion, and they don't care about human rights. Well, let's hope that what the Taliban has announced about women is true and that you are correct that this is a kinder, gentler uh, Taliban that has returned to power as a result of what's happened in these recent days. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, if you didn't have another obligation, we'd keep you here for... Uh, double the time, but we are very grateful that you spent the time with us right now. So thank you very much. Thank you, Malcolm. Yeah. Thank you. Very much. 
So, Jill, that was a fascinating episode with Malcolm. Um, last night when we were preparing for the episode, we were trying to really find questions that um, everyone would have about what's happening in Afghanistan. I texted one of my friends who I knew wasn't really involved in um, politics, and he responded um, to my question of, you know, what are your thoughts on Afghanistan? He responded, to be honest, I haven't really followed the story. Um, so maybe to start off the, the chit-chat, um, I guess, why do you think young people should care about what's happening in Afghanistan? Obviously, they should care because everything in the world affects us in America. I mean, this is a global society. But also because if you don't understand what happened there in the past and what's happening right now, this is the first draft of history if you read the newspapers about what's going on in Afghanistan, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think as we talked about during the show with Malcolm, we aren't the first people to be in Afghanistan. Britain was there. Russia was there. We made the same mistakes about trying to change the culture and impose our way of life in a country that wasn't particularly interested in our way of life. Uh, we did the same thing in Vietnam, ignoring the French experience there and going in thinking that we would get a different result. So I think for your friend, I would say pay attention or you're going to be paying the price of repeating this mistake down the road, whether it's a year from now or 10 years from now, when you're in charge of the government, when you're the voters. So pay attention now. It is really, really important. And everybody should listen to this episode because Malcolm is a great analyst, a great storyteller. So even though he talked a lot about the history and the background, he also gave us a real understanding of who the Taliban are and made them a little less scary to me. Um, I wouldn't want to live there um, and be subjected as a woman to what may be coming for women. But I think we learned a lot from him and it'll be fascinating for other people. I'd be very interested in hearing your friend's response to Malcolm and what we talk about today. Uh, but to all of our listeners and our watchers on YouTube, please let us know uh, what you think. Definitely. And if I can just add one thing to your brilliant response, I think um, Malcolm mentioned so much about compassion and, and our role in um, international affairs. And I, we ended the podcast by asking him, kind of comparing the U.S. and um, what's happening in Afghanistan. And I think you mentioned women's rights, human's rights. I think this is a moment for us to really understand that this is, we can be compassionate. We can, you know, that may be lost in our current domestic politics, but internationally, we can still care for human rights, women's rights, and um, be that lending hand as America, I think, once was and can be. So um, I think this is a moment for all of us to kind of unite together and um, support those women um, who have made such progress over the years, but because of the Taliban rule now may be um, in, in greater danger and harm's way. And there are organizations that are raising funds to help women. And maybe we can let our um, listeners and viewers know some of the places that they might be able to contribute to help um, or to help the resettled um, special immigrant visa uh, recipients. Once they get to America, they're going to need some support. And I think it would be helpful if we could post that on our show notes so that they will know. And you're right, compassion, very important. We should pay attention to all of this. And we should also think about, you know, as we 
As he said, there really has never been democracy in Afghanistan, but there is democracy in America, and it was threatened very much in the same way. Um, I asked him about a comparison between what happened on January 6th and what's happening in Afghanistan. And I think that too was a very interesting insight from him. Definitely an insightful interview. And we hope all of you um, have enjoyed this episode. Um, We'll have a new one next week. So um, be sure to follow us wherever you um, find your podcasts and we'll see you next week.